0: Promise No Promises The Tale and the Tongue Episode 17 Not Knowing How a Dead Language Sounded The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tale and the Tongue This series of episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words, and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Not knowing how a dead language sounded is episode 17 of the series, which follows a conversation with multimedia producer, writer, public speaker, educator, audio remixer, DJ and owner of the Comatones recordings record label Terry Tamlitz. The title of this podcast is inspired by a comment that appeared during this meeting with Terry. She proposed a future in which aspects of the past are unknown as a critical gesture towards the ongoing and growing demand for visibility and preservation of mainstream, but not only archival systems. These platforms, far from being as democratic as they claim to be, are structures regulated by neoliberal logics and laws. Rather than supporting the work of many artists and music producers, they complicate it, if not prevented. Terry Tamlett's analysis is not only directed towards mainstream archives or standards of authorship, but what one might unfairly summarize as queer archives. Despite the good intentions of many content-critical archives, their underlying logic remains the same as that of conventional archives. One tradition is replaced for another as is also the case with one's dissident ways of life. Anti-tradition is diminishing in favor of counter-tradition. The way in which the medium tends to disappear or go unnoticed among the content is not something random or innocent either. Like any other medium, archives and documents produce ideology and are produced by ideology. Following more of Terry's comments, this podcast conversation is also not excluded from how criticism of the system is part of the system. Because, as he says, analysis and artistic work is often confused with political organization. As important as statements can be, structures of oppression cannot be changed by words, discourses or works of art. The criticism of the medium is something that also appears in Give Up on Hopes and Dreams, a documentary about Terry Tamlett's work published in 2021 by resident advisor. For someone who thinks mostly in conversation, like me and so many other people I know, coming across a conversation-driven documentary was an unexpected and welcome surprise. Give Up on Hopes and Dreams relates and discusses a selection of objects relevant to Terry's work through different conversations between her and close friends and collaborators. The result is not only one of many possible constellations into and from Terry's extensive work, but a conscious rejection of the heroic, individualistic and linear logic of most documentaries. This determination to avoid narrative and ideological conventions is combined with the intention to avoid Western clichés about Japan, where Terry has lived for many years. I admit that this documentary had a particular impact on me when deciding to ask Terry Tamlitz to hold a conversation together, as did two of her Berlin events, his performance, Deep Production, and her session as DJ Sprinkles at Panorama Bar last spring. Although I couldn’t attend the first one, I was able to be present at the second one. On other occasions, Terry has commented that he does not enjoy DJing and that she often does it for the wrong audience, which does not take into account the history or the context of struggle in which music happens and is born. Far from the emotional and experiential cliches of music, the direction of her session made me think more of a gentle lecture without words, than of the uncritical hedonism of so many dance floors. Contrary to popular opinion, music is not so much about feelings or authenticity as it is about systems of social, historical, and political interactions, nor is it made of isolated genres or universal materials. There are discourses, strategies, and ideologies in music that go beyond language. But it is also a signifying form that loses many relevant meanings with distribution in time and space. This is something that also happens to words. I think of concepts such as queer, community, or radical, among many others. From repeating them so much, we no longer know what we're saying with them or what they once meant. When everything is something, that something becomes nothing. At the same time, keeping repeating stories and situations that tend to be forgotten is a way to keep them present and audible. Moreover, with each repetition, new considerations and directions for things appear, amplifying their spectrum. This is something that happens by spending time with Terry in his interviews and conversations with other people, as well as reading texts and listening to audios that are part of her Comatones website. This conversation with Terry Tamlitz took place during August 2023. She was in Chiba, Japan, and I was in Berlin. For our meeting, I prepared a script with too many questions, knowing that it is impossible to answer them all, however generous each guest will be in terms of time and words. The very dynamics of the conversation led us to other places that also raised questions that shaped the script. I shared with Terry concerns about how the language we speak, native or non native, play a big part in the way we think. Not only does the form or habitus influence content, but sometimes they also contradict how we think. This happens to me with the term familiar, when it is used to say that we know or don't know something. During our conversation on the current situation of gender pronouns, I also shared with Terry my thoughts on other uses for the pronoun they. Sometimes I perceive in this pronoun a chance to imply the plurality of the self the they in relation to the I, and not so much to the she or he. But I also think that this personal wish shows how self-determination is not enough when it comes to pronouns, gender, or many other things. The relation dynamics of gender also emerged in this conversation with Terry Tamlitz. Like Brigitte Vassallo, he's very nuanced about the widespread belief that removing gender from language removes its impact on social realities. She also questions notions and practices that are taken for good or bad on their own, ignoring the situation in which they occur. For example, silence as a problem, or visibility, or pride as a solution in terms of identities and ways of life. The increasing essentialization of identities nears dogma with a proliferation of labels that conceal the underlying colonial ethos of taxonomies. We are often asked to speak in keywords that make us less complex than we are. Identity as a comfort zone or final destination contradicts the identity discomfort of so many lives. Being different like others is not the same as being different from others. In typing this introduction, I think of how most of the critical texts we write in art tend to end with some kind of solution or poetic formula. This is something that makes no sense to introduce a conversation with Terry Tamblitz, who is openly pessimistic. However, I would like to end by thanking Terry and acknowledging the amount of work and energy it takes to unsettle stable positions, especially those that generate critical consensus.
1: I would just like the listeners to be aware that what you're hearing are excerpts of a conversation that did have a complete other person there talking and I was responding and interacting and a lot of the things that I was saying were triggered by the things they were saying and thinking about there is this relational aspect to everything that I was talking about that is going to be lost in this podcast as it emerges in its editorial form. And so just putting it out there that um, misreadings are possible. And I don't have a memory of saying anything particularly controversial or anything, but to also just have people keep in mind that the possibility for misreadings and misinterpretation is, uh, is also part of it and it's okay. But in the same way that i never speak any truth don't interpret any truth or of interpretation into anything that you feel i'm saying either and let's just keep it all kind of in flux Give Up on Hopes and Dreams was a documentary done with Patrick Nation from Resident Advisor. And I knew Patrick from a previous documentary he did. They did a series of different documentaries on the nightclub scenes in different cities. I think it's called Real Life. So it was like Real Life Berlin, Real Life Tokyo or something like that. That might be the wrong name. But anyway, in the Tokyo one, we spent like eight hours together And I was just like downloading all kinds of information and from my mouth to their video. And I took them on a kind of tour of a sex district and different things. And we did a lot of different things. And then in the actual documentary, I just ended up being in it for maybe like 20 seconds, 30 seconds. I have to say it was a little um, shocking that I didn't even get a full minute. But anyway, no. What happened then was I think somehow I made an impression on on him and he decided that he wanted to do a larger piece. I think we were either calling in Skype or in phone or something and he mentioned the idea of a documentary but his initial concept was very traditional and he was talking about wanting to go with me back to my hometown in Missouri and meet with family and friends. The whole life journey thing which I wasn't really comfortable with, but I kind of wanted to try and get him to have it be less about the ego or the character and more about the work. Because for me, yeah, like the published work is what I think it should be, about, not about myself or whatever. So we kind of came up with this idea then of following Ultra Red's protocols for listening, which was where basically people come in with, in the Ultra Reds, protocols for listening it's usually a sound object which is like a recording or something like that but in this case we allowed it to be whatever any kind of visual audio or physical object whatever so each of the other participants in the film they would kind of bring their own things and i wasn't involved in those decisions so when i showed up to the filming i also didn't know what people had brought Or if I did, I I don't have a memory that it, but in any case, there was no editing of what people brought. You were asking me about, like, you know, what things were, how did the decision come about to bring certain things or exclude others? Uh, That was up to the individuals themselves and what they wanted to bring. Um, There was then, of course, the editing process where a lot of things got cut because everybody brought three objects, I believe. So in the end, you know, a lot of them got cut from the, film just to create a flow. The filming took place over three days at a kind of community center here in Japan. It was in the prefecture where I live and just a kind of public city hall run space. Uh, community center in the countryside here. And that was also deliberate to avoid the ways that so many documentaries involving Japan and especially involving foreigners in Japan can f- very quickly fall into Orientalist cliches, fetishizing cliches about the kind of high tech Japan and anime and manga and all this shit that I don't care about. So it was a very deliberate thing to not have him do that because that conversation that we have in the beginning of the film that you reference, where it's basically reenacting the conversation we had on the telephone where I was telling him what I felt would be good to avoid. It was funny that in the earlier edits of the documentary, for example, when I said, you know, like, I don't want like a high speed image of the people crossing the Shibuya scramble or whatever. And in the original drafts, he would actually go to those very shots that I was saying I didn't want included. And I think that wasn't him trying to poke me or anything. It was actually him trying to spoon-feed the audience in a very conventional documentary director way, just like, oh, let's make everything as clear as possible for the audience. But, you know, the result, of course, as Mark felt pointed out to me and I was totally depressed about but Mark Fell was just like he's aren't you upset that he's like showing I'm like, Yeah, I am I don't know what to do about this. I don't so it was a very complicated editing process. And I think Patrick also was quite out of his element. Yeah, that's why we brought in Lawrence English to help him get it into a kind of scripted or direction. That was a really good move to get Lawrence involved. mentioned that a friend of yours from Japan told you that Japan doesn't really have a future tense, and I'm not really sure that that's correct. Um, they certainly have ways of speaking to events that haven't happened yet and that should or or that they desire to happen and things, which I would consider to be future tense, although I'm I might be misinterpreting the whole grammar concept. But I did find that in speaking Japanese, one of the interesting things about being here during the past two decades when all of the kind of pronoun debates and things like that were emerging in the west around queer and trans issues and things like that here in japan you normally don't identify the subject it's just implied through the sentence itself so instead of saying like uh oh, he's eating lunch, it would be more like eating lunch. And then you realize from the context, oh, it means that person. And then, you know, whether that person's whatever gender or whatever, it's all unspoken. I found it interesting that before I lived in Japan, of course, the kinds of debates that I heard around language and I was also considering was the idea that, uh, you know, through my trips to Germany and things like that and with gender and things, the, the gendered objects and neutral and things like that, was that somehow there were these feminist arguments and queer arguments coming out that like eradicating those gender I don't know if you call them predicates or whatever, that if you got rid of them, that then that would also enact some sort of cultural liberation. And it was just interesting to me to come to Japan, which is a country that doesn't use those kinds of signifiers or even oftentimes doesn't even identify the subject of a sentence. And yet it's one of the most stoically misogynistic, sexist patriarchies around. One of the recurrent themes that I had in Japan was not like, oh, look at this great thing in Japan, but actually like, oh, if you consider, for example, like Japan has very long traditions of male to female, transgendered visibility, like many non-Western cultures, and also not having the gender pronoun thing come up in language hardly. And yet Japan is not at all like a location that anybody would um, hail as, advanced or or kind of, advanced is the wrong word, but I mean, really like engaged with dismantling of the patriarchal and gender-based and sexist issues that people kind of imply are inherent to those language issues. That's like the most important thing that I've come to really understand and speak about and write about and stuff in all my years here was how so many of the presumptions of cultural analyses in the West, particularly those that argue that visibility and audibility are always going to be inherently empowering and can lead inherently to organizational and structural change and that silence has been the problem all this time and things like this, that actually is way more complicated than that. And, you know, I'm also someone who's done a lot of work around avoiding things like queer archives, um, questioning the functions of archives in the West and under contemporary globalism. Also thinking about legacies of the closet and how pride seeks to basically eradicate these strategies for silence and secrecy that have protected and enabled people to survive for centuries. So all of these things are kind of things that I've been able to articulate better in English to for a Western audience based on my seeing how so many of the presumptions of what the West has to have happen around supposedly around visibility or audibility or the debates around the pronouns and how all those things are, yeah, those aren't going to be necessarily keys to make the transformations that people believe are inherently kind of a subtext to those movements. Maybe it was um, at this point 15 years ago or 10 years ago, between 10 and 15 years ago, when I first started hearing about people at meetings, when they introduced themselves, that they also specify their gender pronoun preferences and also the way it went from preferred pronouns to personal pronouns and how that also was a transition from a kind of interactional thing like a preference within other options to something that was then possessive the personal pronoun it's something that is Deeper into the essentialist identity construct, that it is of the person, not and no longer transactional. These were things that were like really strange and bizarre and upsetting for me, especially as a non essentialist person who has always fought to try and emphasize the politics of transaction over the essentialist dogma of identity. And to understand that identity is not from within but that identity is in itself relational and a political site. So as that idea of announcing your pronouns and respecting pronoun again with respect and power. Respect is also something that I really dislike. I'm much more interested in divestments of power. I'm not interested in embracing power and so respect for me is really not a tool that I'm interested in cultivating, when people demand respect, that's instantly a turnoff for me. The way that I experienced the whole pronoun thing was really thinking about, like, fuck, I spent my whole childhood having to deal with the projection of pronouns on me. You know, like, you're a fucking pussy girl, you know, you're a, the feminine pronoun language being put on me. And then, of course, like, you know, I was a child and I was didn't know how to handle them. In the beginning, it's like trying to say, no, no, I'm a, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, you know, and then getting to a different age where you kind of have different takes on it. And then it's like, oh, I'm, I don't, fuck, do I even need to decide or whatever? And it's like, you know, what are you, a boy or a girl and fucking fag and this sort of thing? That whole experience. And then now when you meet queer people and they're like, so what are you, you fucking fag? Are you a guy or a gal or what? That's how it feels to me. Like the whole pronoun thing feels like so now you're saying even in the supposed queer safe spaces where that were i could kind of escape from that sort of bullshit now it's like i'm still faced with these same dilemmas of having to perform my gender for other people and announce it and but pretend that it's actually about explaining something from within myself for them when actually it's a demand from them that i perform an identifiable gender to them. I mean, it's like, fuck it, fuck everything. I just stay the fuck away from me with all this shit. I really hate it. My interest in the whole pronoun thing is making it as uncomfortable for other people as it is for me and having them understand that in that there is no liberation that I for me at least, like coming out of that identification. And whatever type of liberation is on is for sale through that is one that is going to come with all the problems of taxonomy and categorization and all the problems, the colonial issues that arise out of Western liberal humanism. I recently, in an interview, I had an issue with they because there are ways in English where they also is not meant to be like a subversive, queer, whatever thing, but it's just something that naturally in the course of a conversation, if gender is completely irrelevant, it can just naturally be excluded. So I was talking about, what was I talking about? I was talking about somebody who um, did something in any way I was saying, and I was just referring to a single person but saying, oh, they did this and da, da, da traditionally if you just speak like that okay it might be grammatically a little incorrect and it might be more conversational English than correct grammatical written English but it is very common to use they in a kind of moment where it's just the information about gender is secondary it doesn't matter so just like focusing getting to the point but this in this moment today the journalist then completely heard it as a pronoun game for me then is also like a real a loss of vagary, kind of like what you mentioned earlier about the space that is allowed by something being unnamed. The vagary of they has now been co-opted by this essentialist pronoun bullshit so that it becomes yet another structure. It becomes yet another singularity. So it is the singularity of plurality, right? So that is, again, like all this kind of derailing stuff for me emulates too closely the experience of the demands for the people who fag-bashed me in my youth for me to declare my gender, it's just too much of mainstream dominant kind of liberal LGBT community blah blah, emulating the very thing that of which is symptomatic and claims to be in antithesis to but is really entirely symptomatic of liberal humanist agendas. I haven't cared how people addressed me for decades. I used to get hung up on it. But for me it wasn't about ever being something that I felt like I could dictate. Like even when I was in my twenties and like in femme drag in my youth, there were times I could pass as female. In the queer trans scenes I grew up in, is like if somebody's dressed femme, then you don't know what to call, you just default to she. If they're dressed Butch, you default to he. If they want something else, they can let you know, but it's not a big deal and whatever. So when I was dressed in femme clothes, and if people were then referring to me in the masculine, I didn't take that as a moment for me to then say, hey, who are you calling he or whatever? Because that in itself was like too macho for me. Ugh, enough. But it was understanding the limits of passability. And I think that these are also things that are really important to to understand the transactional component of how gender represents and is a give and take. You can't dictate your gender to other people. It has to be understood as something that emerges out of a social conundrum. And that means that it can be disappointing. It can be frustrating. And of course, under patriarchy and this male-female, what is masculine, what is feminine, what is manly, what is womanly, and the absence of so much in between and stuff, it's going to be incredibly frustrating if you're a person who's grown up or been engaged in emotional struggles around those things. To then take on this character of wanting to dictate gender to other people is really taking on the character of the fag basher, of the clergy that's against you or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't understand how people can get so, of course, I can understand how people can get so motivated and fall into that because it's it's lowest common denominator behavior. But I think that should be, we should be able to allow ourselves for something more complex. The fact that mainstream culture has co-opted so much of queerness and trans discourse and imagery and things like that. Like I said earlier, I'm 55 years old, and I consider myself to be of a younger generation still, politically speaking. And But just like in my life, I've certainly witnessed a kind of heteronormatization of dominant LGBT issues and politics And I think that that isn't by chance. That, of course, is something that dominant culture has, that liberalism has manifested socially in a way that then has alleviated a lot of the kinds of antagonisms and forced consciousness, we might say, that people of earlier generations had to have due to the inherent antagonism between trying to understand their own positions of difference in relation to heteronormativity versus today when you can actually be completely queer, completely trans, and also completely heteronormative, salary, family values, own a house, military. You know what I mean? Like there's no longer any kind of inherent countercultural consciousness that comes with queerness anymore. And so that, has to be then become in its place we find the majority of shit liberal people in the world just projecting a difference of identity structures and that is it's devoid of the kinds of struggles that people had to go through in the past 30 years ago 50 years ago etc that's just a political and cultural change and i think as a result of that queerness and trans issues are no longer the inherently leftist or inherently liberal in the traditional sense in terms of openness and things like that, those are no longer hallmarks of queer spaces anymore. I can understand the allure and also you know you are coming to the they in English as a second language and so there are ways that we can in that uh, second third language outsider stance there are things that can have meaning for us that don't resonate with the native speakers um, like for me here in Japan as well. Again what I'm saying also isn't meant to be dogmatic and to dictate anything but it's actually a response to the demand to dictate that I'm trying to complicate and say like hey it's always going to be awkward it's always going to be unsettling and you know what like under patriarchy good it should it should be unsettling because to be comfortable in this system to find your place of comfort within this fucked up corrupt system of imbalance and abuse and violence that is a bad character trait for me you know what i mean like it's like i guess what the young kids would call a red flag to moving to Japan and learning Japanese and stuff, I have to say I was very disappointed by the fact that when I came here, I thought it would be like German. I'm sorry, I don't know anything about Spanish, but I know a little bit about German. And like in German, you can basically create new words by just slamming two or three other words together and and then it becomes something new and different, but also people can understand it from the start and these sorts of things. And I thought coming to Japan, because they use kanji, like the Chinese characters and things like that, that there would be a kind of poetry to Japanese that could parallel German. Before I moved here and thinking about the prospects of speaking about queer and trans issues in Japanese, I was thinking, oh, it, there might be that flexibility. But actually I was really shocked very early on to realize that that's totally impossible. Japanese people will shut down any attempt, especially from a foreigner, any attempt at introducing new poetics, any attempt at trying to create new arrangements of kanji for new words or new meanings. They'll just act like they have absolutely no framework through which to even think about how to go about understanding what you're trying to say. And it was interesting that I really couldn't understand what this was about for a long time, for many years, because I was like, what is the political, you know, I'm a person that always assumes everything ties back to the material and and economics and things. So I'm like, what is, other than keeping a public roboticized or whatever, but, but what would be the actual advantage or why would there be such a cultural aversion to this idea of the poetic creation of new words and things like that? And it turned out that there actually was a very real anti-classist movement that is at the base of it. And that's because in previous centuries and stuff, the monks and leaders, they would try to show their elitism and their education and stuff by writing as cryptically as possible. So like the most celebrated and quintessentially high culture writings from two centuries ago or something would be things that nobody, even the other people around those monks who wrote them or whatever, couldn't understand. And so it wasn't about ...cultures celebrating texts that really resonated with meaning, it was about the ones that were impenetrable. And so when you had this revolt against that and the attempt to create uh, literacy among the Japanese public, which I think was in the Edo era, then you had the development of hiragana and katakana and like the phonetic alphabet systems... Of course, hiragana was the phonetic system that was originally also developed for women to use in writing because women weren't supposed to be using the Chinese characters that were reserved for men and blah, blah, blah. All these different dynamics were there. So the literacy movement actually sought to restrict and kind of centralize and normalize, standardize what characters, what Chinese characters would be used in public discourse. And as a result of that, there's a certain number of Chinese characters that every student has to learn. Then like those are the the fixed central characters for all Japanese public language and what's used in newspapers and things like this. And so it was this rejection of elitism that led to this anti-poetic and also anti-queering of the language. When I first moved here, it was just too counterintuitive for me to even be able to think about how it placed into a historical trajectory but yeah it was actually came out of this anti-elitist movement the result of course is this system now where yeah then it becomes impossible to queer the language or incredibly difficult to do it want to get to that subject actually the subject of fuckability uh, just to close off the previous thing you know one thing that i've experienced throughout the years and that i've noticed has changed a little bit in terms of audience reactions in recent years is that of course like for safety and things like that and documentation purposes and things i exclusively travel in boy drag And so usually when organizers and people pick me up at the airport or something, their first interaction with me is dressed male. They internalize that sort of thing quickly. And then if I'm doing a Terry Temlitz performance later and I'm uh, in the performance or I'm doing a, a dressed femme. Also, my style of drag is that, you know, I don't change my voice. I don't really change my behaviors or anything. I'm basically the same person. But people completely react differently based on clothing. It's fascinating how differently people will hear your voice differently even though you're speaking it the exact same and things, everything. But a lot of times during the introductions of performances and things, if I'm in fem drag, but if my interactions with the organizer until that point have been dressed in uh, male drag, they'll speak in front of the audience uh, with me standing there in fem drag but refer to me as he and him and stuff. Of course, for me, this is like kind of funny. It's part of the troublemaking, I appreciate. But I've noticed there have definitely been events I've been to where then audiences were, you know, ooh, or punishing the correcting the announcer. Of course, like the audience doesn't understand that whole interactive history where this person who's now referring to me as he, despite my being in femme clothes, is doing that because they've also been interacting with me in men's clothes people don't think about those interactions and how they condition people so quickly for them it's just like oh here's this person kind of being a prick to somebody who's obviously a she which is also presumptive on the audience's part because of course i don't identify i don't feel any affiliation to either You can say that T-shirts and jeans aren't inherently men's clothes, but I can tell you for sure when you're tucking something that there are differences in the cuts of those pants, (laughs) that they do fit differently. The fashion industry will never let bodies get away without being squeezed into one gender or another. It's uh, brutal. ¶¶ The very model of neutrality itself is also socially transactional, you know? For example, like you spoke about, if you wear something neutral, it ends up in its lack of femininity going towards the masculine. It's the same for myself. If I'm wearing something a kind of step away from the masculine, then it instantly reads as feminine. The feminine reading of my own body growing by others around me growing up or you're Spanish, so you know, I have a Spanish woman's name. I which was deliberate from my parents, but it's a very strange decision of these Catholic maniacs who <laughs> who thought that, yeah, I mean, Jesus, I mean, ugh. But anyway, I just wanted to say that just the idea of neutrality itself is transactional and, and not static. And it depends on the reading of others, how others read your body in relation to their expectations of gender versus the gender signs that you're presenting. That's where it all happens. And what we feel about our own gender is actually the least important. And I feel like from a political standpoint should be deprioritized, not in terms of like then granting all the power to those around us type of blah, blah, bullshit, which I think is what standard thinking people are afraid of, but in terms of actually like disempowering that process, not falling susceptible to the very types of indoctrinations around gender and sexuality that coming from a critical queer perspective we've identified and written about extensively and reacted against within straight people and people who are gender reconciled since birth and stuff. My general approach towards online presence and things that then do function in these dominant archival corporate fields, since I started 30 years ago, my rule has basically been like, I'll contribute to discourse, like I'll allow words Written, whether it's written and these days podcast formats are becoming more and more prevalent and interviews have always been a format that I've used to critique the interview process itself and also push the themes and language that would be typically not represented within uh, mainstream music magazines or things like that. I've always been willing to allow a kind of discourse, word based, verbal and written language stuff to be Preserve, But that I've struggled to keep the actual media, the audio and video and other things out of those archival systems, YouTube and things like that as much as possible. But again, that's not out of a kind of selfish, uh, authoritarian, pro-copyright stance. It's actually a rejection of those very... Ways that copyright and authorship and all of those things are the legal foundations for the very archival systems that I'm trying to stay out of. Those systems are also including their like data content scanning bots and copyright bots and all these things that really make collage based work like my own increasingly impossible to produce and generate. There is no more a kind of underground free. There's never been a free space, but, you know, there's the mobility that collage-based media had has been increasingly shrunk down by legal court cases against sample usage, copyright claim stuff. And people, if they're interested in my take on that, they can see the text on my website about that. But my fantasy would be that, like, if you... Are reading a dead language, the actual sound of like, oh, what did Terry's music actually sound like? What did the videos look like? You don't know in the same way, like you don't know how a dead language actually sounded. That for me would be like a really nice ideal. Of course, that's not going to happen. There's already things, there's no way to avoid it archiving today, but that's been my approach. And I think that's also been to allow for a degree of self-erasure Not have it be all about this desperate art world or music world bullshit compulsion to be as visible as possible. And you got to get as many people looking at your shit. I mean, as if everything functions like a major label release. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. If you're operating as a very small level, selling a thousand copies of something is a lot. That can have a good financial outcome for you. If you're not going to be selling like tens of thousands of records, stuff, then why would you punish yourself with all the weird legal and contractual constraints of major label bullshit and you want to do everything like the big guys do when you're just like a little pussy fag who just needs to get by? Just be, be that pussy fag. It's okay, you know? i think to be interpreting the no photo policy in a queer club god like you're kind of blowing my mind right now because it shows how culture has become so removed from certain material struggles it seems like if your take on a no photo policy at berghain or something like that is about the construction of images and these sorts of things as opposed to it being about the closet and about privacy and about just old school queer facts of like, Hey, yeah, no pictures allowed in here because it can destroy lives. That's still how I take it. That it's still about the idea of no photos because photos can destroy lives. You're talking to someone who's never owned a cell phone. So I've always been really freaked out by selfie culture because, you know, like I'm of the generation that like if you went somewhere and you wanted to take a photograph to memorialize it. You actually like took this really bad landscape photo of a building or whatever. If you were in the photo yourself, you were just this little tiny figure in the distance that somebody else was taking the photo from far enough back so that they could get the whole building plus you in it or something. And the whole way that taking photographs on vacation or just in daily life has become so much about documenting the self At the expense of documenting the actual place that you're at or what could be unique or memorable about it, the memory is just the proof that you were in a place that you remember being. It's no longer about any sort of relationship to documenting a memory of the place itself. And so it's so very strange. I was in Australia a couple months ago in April. And as usual, I was trying to go to the bathroom and somebody came up to me while I was in the middle of going to the bathroom asking if they could take a photograph. And so I said, Well, not while I'm pissing. Like, okay, they wait. And then it's like, okay, so I'm like, okay, like yeah, like we kind of leave the bathroom and we're in the hall. And then I would say they were mid thirties. I wouldn't think of them as like super young person. They're, you know, adultish. And They held their phone, and then, like, they got us in. And, like, I'm doing, like, the 55-year-old dumb smile. And then they're doing this whole angled head, pouty lips, the full selfie experience thing. And I literally was just like, why the fuck are you taking that photo making me look like an asshole like that kid? Of course, I was having fun with them, but I was just so livid. There was no attempt from that person to bring me into their representational world, or they were just going to leave me stranded out there while well, they looked great in their selfie. There is a lot of invisible labor that goes on in terms of, for example, the public at large or the fans or the people who are into the music or the videos or the writing or whatever. By the time something gets published and distributed, there is usually a lot of invisible labor and negotiation that goes on with trying to make arrangements with how things will be distributed and or more explicitly these days how they won't be. I would say that like what I consider to be my, if you want to say my work is a project of sorts, a critical project, that half of that project will always be invisible to the public at large because it has to simply do with how I negotiate things with Organizers or journalists or label representatives, publishers, etc., doing negotiations that seem counterintuitive to the ways that they're accustomed to doing them or something. So that's also kind of like a nice invisibility, you could say, you know. But unfortunately, it also means that maybe some strategies that could be useful to some other people also maybe don't get. So easily shared, but also those dominant archives or YouTube or podcasts or whatever, I wouldn't feel that those are the places to share my strategies either because they have too much wide distribution with too little responsibility for how things might be reappropriated or whatever. any kind of discussion that comes into like uh, issues of care and wellness is a buzzword that I guess I don't hear so much anymore, but any of these sorts of things are basically signs of a failed state. That's how I see it. I kind of see it in the same way that my project deproduction spoke about The insistence upon family values, even for queers and trans people and stuff, is really about a political necessity to isolate certain social services to the family in order to liberate the capitalist state from having to have any sort of expense with those things. A lot of this kind of wellness and culture and stuff, too, is something that's basically obviously emerged out of the lack of things like healthcare and especially when you talk about in the united states and things where that absence of what most liberal humanists would consider fundamental human rights like healthcare you have to then come up with all these elaborate um, strategies to justify all of the actions you're forced to take by a state that refuses any responsibility for you in those sectors and so that's how you end up with family values that's how you end up with wellness that's how you end up with all this care blah blah of course, there are real material needs for strategies to survive within those contexts that do deny services to people, especially people living outside of family structures and things like that. From the political side, I'm always disappointed that a lot of these things take these, I would consider them orientalist homeopathy approaches that are aesthetically counter. Cultural. They're not politically countercultural. They're more aesthetically countercultural. That for me has always been an aesthetic that I think also particularly among queers in the arts and stuff too. There's just so many layers of aesthetic dogma going around that then everything suddenly becomes like oh aesthetics are the way to to get us out of things you know or like we can live an aesthetic politic or these ideas that I think are really just digging deeper into a kind of partnership with liberal humanism, rather than finding ways to actually rebel against it and resist it from, even if it is an unwinnable game. The arts, as a promising political site for any sort of change I mean I even going back to my teenage years when I was studying art at Cooper Union I had a project for the end of the year that was basically would always refer to any kind of political art or any of that sort of stuff as critique affirming its object because it was incredibly clear that no matter how hard we pushed our critiques and of the sites within which we were working that in the end we affirmed those sites in their benevolence because they became like the gracious sites that were willing to allow us to give voice against them. That's where I think there's an inherent compromise that can never be overcome in any of this art and music industry, any of this culture industry stuff from the critical perspective, also with academia and stuff, of course, because We are actually like the poster children for free expression, that we are how they actually sell their image of openness. Um, And by facilitating spaces for people to push certain types of critiques that might even seem to target the very sites in which we function and work, that makes the benefactors look wonderful. But it also makes us fools because we, of course, are not able to truly dissect and dismantle any of these things. And, of course, we then become ideologically stunted to the point where we feel like we're actually challenging these sites we inhabit. But we're not challenging anything. I mean, I can say for a fact, anything that I've done in music and arts and festivals video film festivals any, whatever it is even articles in the press what, this podcast none of this is doing anything none of this is doing anything I'm sorry it's um, granting a kind of economic survival that allows me a mobility and outside of standard industrial employment that I've worked very hard to avoid my entire life office work and things like that but to to pretend that these things are accomplishing things. I don't feel that. I would never present anything that I've done as doing that. But I can speak to the idea of... Generating analyses, I do feel that my work within these different media fields is about the construction of critical analyses and putting those analyses out there. I think the tendency for artists and musicians and stuff is to confuse the analysis, the object of analysis, the product of analysis, the release, the video, the album, whatever, the artwork, whatever. The tendency is to confuse the analysis for an actual act of political organizing and resistance blah blah and that is how we end up with the you know modernist objectification and classic Marxist reification of art and music so that it assumes properties of value under capitalism I think it's really important to just really restrict perceptions of what I do and the types of things that other people do similar to my as to see it as a form of analysis and to never confuse that with, actual political organizing or to just understand that it's something that can inform, the analysis can be interpreted, read, heard, and used to inform actions, but it should never be confused as the kind of rebellious action that it is often sold to the public as being. The reason that I've gotten involved in audio primarily was because I made a decision to leave the arts. I made that decision halfway through my bachelor's program at Cooper Union studying fine art. Like a good girl, I finished my diploma for my parents' sake, so I could say I had my degree. But I knew by the end of the second of four years that I didn't want anything to do with the art industry in terms of making that my life. And the reason for that was because so many of the critiques of authorship and exploitation and things that had existed for a hundred years. They were documented in the library at the school. People knew about these critiques, and yet it was just business as usual. The example I always bring up, and I apologize to people who are tired of hearing me say the exact same thing over and over, but repetition is also part of uh, committing things to memory. Think of Warhol and how he basically was doing work that was about reprinting things from newspapers and corporate logos and things without permission. But now his work is celebrated by a Warhol foundation that will sue you if you print any of his work without permission. The hypocrisy of that is totally nobody gives a fuck about it. You know, they're happy to live with that hypocrisy and think that that is somehow celebrating Warhol's work. Right. So when you're dealing with those willingly... Just cynical hypocrites, not critical hypocrites. You know, like, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm critically so. I embrace it from a critical perspective. I'm not just, like, arrogantly hypocritical. I, I struggle with it. The reason I then ended up started working in music was because if you look at those kinds of arguments that had been historically made against authorship and originality and authenticity and stuff in the arts and how that has failed to take root there... In the pop cultural level related to music, it was an even more abrasive form of denial for any of those critiques. People are so willing to be seduced by the idea of the authenticity of musicians. And by taking some of the knowledge and critiques and analyses I was exposed to in the arts that clearly failed within the arts and then to bring them to... The field of music, which is even more regressive in its insistence of issues of authenticity and stuff, to the point where collage-based work has been basically rendered illegal by sampling laws and things like that, the idea of fair use that's present in a lot of visual work, visual fields, is not present in audio fields and things like that. It's completely regressive, both ideologically, politically, legally within the music industry. And so to bring those critiques and analyses that already failed in the arts and to reperform their failure within the spheres of audio and music production was a deliberate choice I made 30 years ago. And it's not about trying to get those critiques to then function. It's about demonstrating over and over and over their failure and to drive that point of the impossibility of just, just a nihilistic frustration of trying to deal with these issues in this fucking shit world. That's kind of how I ended up focusing more on music. But of course, knowing that how economically insecure all of this stuff was, I also tried to develop projects that could still function a little bit in the art world, a little bit in the music world, a little bit in academia, here and there. So that thinking as a freelance part-time employee, when one industry or one marketplace was down then another one could go up. And these things do operate in tandem to each other. For example, like back in 2003 or so when IFA, the biggest electronic music distributor, went under and that brought with it a huge number of small independent labels as well because, of course, music distribution is a pyramid scheme. That was also the precise moment, if you remember, when the art world was rediscovering sound art. And they were framing it as like this rediscovery of something from the 60s. And, and it was the curators were redigging up this history and stuff. And what it really was, was that you had this massive surplus of digital audio producers that had been let, rendered unemployed by the collapse of the distribution systems in the music marketplace. And then they were turning to the arts and performance, soundtrack work. People like Robin Rimbaud, Scanners almost exclusively went towards doing soundtrack for stage performances and things like this. Other people were, ringtones were a big thing. Or But like, there's a lot of like sound art, blah, blah going on. And people from the arts were really insistent that they didn't draw the connections to the economic collapse of distributorships in the fields of electronic audio and experimental audio so that they could preserve the rhetoric of authenticity again and invent the curatorial invention of sound art. But this was clearly about a surplus of audio producers in a marketplace then grasping for opportunities of employment. So it was actually the collapse of Efa and other distributorships and labels that was absolutely linked to rediscovery of sound art in the early 2000s. Those sorts of histories are the first things that are rendered invisible, the economic realities behind these trends. But there's always an economic reality behind any of this shit. And that's why for me, it's really always important to understand that anything any way that any piece of media is functioning in in the ideological sphere is already at the stage of reification and ideological production. You have to understand that you don't see it as the material end-all be-all but rather as an analytical a product of analysis that emerges out of material conditions that are being rendered invisible, oftentimes by the very language of that analysis, of that artwork, of that music piece itself. In classic Marxist fashion, you always have to dig beneath the ideology and understand how culture generates ideology and never fall into that kind of essentialization and reification of knowledge. You kind of mentioned the medium is the message, and I think that that concept has really been like most things, twisted and turned inside out to be understood by most people in a misreading that is the exact mirror opposite of what it was intended. I think most people kind of come to the statement, the medium is the message, as, well, if I make it and it's out there, or if i in a cathartic level, like with uh, Japanese noise music or whatever, that it's just like the experience of being confronted with this media this moment is a message when actually the medium is the message. Historically, what it really meant in the beginning was that it was about the idea that any sort of format, any sort of media that is presented to you, it's related to social systems of power that have cultivated it into a system that actually will sustain and support and feed back into the perpetuation of those systems of power talking about like television news or this was like back in the 60s and stuff like talking about the propagandistic effect of media it was really about a critical saying like hey be aware that these things are propaganda that these media Function in a propagandistic way that you are tuned out to and you need to like tune in, turn on, whatever, blah, blah, 60s stuff, right? So it wasn't about a kind of celebration of formalism or a kind of materialist, cathartic engagement with media that I think most people take it as now, but it was actually about saying, hey, this stuff is functioning in propagandistic ways that we are having trouble being able to unpack and dig down and see what is really happening on the social material level. Art and music certainly are two fields where that misinterpretation, for example, like, yeah, just going to the party and having this great night or fantastic concert or, or this really challenging exhibition and then having this experience, it really creates a different politic. It can actually result in a different political moment. This is like insanity to be thinking like this when actually of course it's like a presentation of the liberal openness of the very system of oppression that's trying to convince you that that you're happy it's all such a game and such a mind fuck it's just amazing how all these things get turned on its head and that's of course we can say the same thing has happened with so much as sexual and gender identity as well and basically essentialist identity is a reification of the soul you could say you know in terms of Marxist reification of the commodity. Essentialist identity would be the equivalent reification of, of your identity, of your mentality, everything. All these things become a ideological inversion of the actual cultural processes, social processes that give rise to their formation and render those systems invisible, you know? It's all a cruel joke. It's very twisted. In your question six, you talk about like why house music and stuff. You talked about other people who are drawn to techno music, especially in Europe as well as America as well, like Detroit and Chicago. I would say that their versions of house music sound much more like techno to me as someone more coming from the New York house scene and stuff. A lot of these things are relational, right? I mean, they're contextual, they're circumstantial. It's not about a universal relationship between any particular genre and a gender or a sexuality or whatever, you know, where in New York, basically it's like, um, techno music. Uh, there were absolutely queer techno clubs like the limelight was the most famous one. It was the one that was like in a church on the West side. In the classic American way where everything is boiled down to race, all the techno parties were white primarily white and they were also primarily straight and the women who did show up were like the girlfriends who were brought along by their boyfriends kind of thing house music on the other hand was more rooted in the queer people of color scenes and stuff it was more like yeah fags of color sound and you know of course also america i did a broadcast for Macbo once about how the racism segregation of the American rock charts versus the black R&B charts and stuff, that that racial segregation is one of the things that killed techno pop and European electronic pop music from like 80 to 82 or so, when there was this really hyper pure synthetic sound coming out of a lot of European countries. Basically, in their attempts to break the American market, the fact that so many of these producers were white meant that they were relegated to the rock market, which meant that then all of these groups, the Human League, the Eurythmics are a classic example of just groups that had very strong synthetic music but then just went turned into just generic rock bands in America within that house context thinking about dance music culture within those sorts of contexts the house scene was much more coming out of the disco soul R&B history of dance music in America and the techno scene was more had these other links to Kraftwerk and YMO and the kind of techno pop trajectories um I was someone who always drew a very clear distinction between techno pop, which I was a huge fan of, and techno as a counterpoint to house in terms of club music. A lot of my experience with this and how I got drawn into house music is something that probably won't resonate or make a lot of sense for a lot of people in Europe and even for a lot of people in the U.S., like I'm sure people in Chicago and Detroit had very different experiences with the fact that a lot of the techno-y sounding music coming out of there. It was being done by a lot of African-American producers and stuff. But in New York, techno was a white thing. And House was coming from this history of disco and that I also enjoyed as a child. I grew up with roller disco. It was, for me, something that was queer and more the techno club spaces. I didn't feel safe in them. I felt that they were more... It just wasn't my scene. It was also too aggressive for me. It was too high-tempoed, it just wasn't my vibe. To think contextually, for example, when I was growing up in the 80s, I would hear about a group like Depeche Mode being played on the radio in Europe, like normal pop, like in the same way John Bon Jovi might be played in my hometown. But for owning a Depeche Mode record, I would literally get beaten up People, You know, so all of these things are so contextual and really radically alter based on how that type of music functioned in the United States. Disco, electronic music, it was all fag music. It was either brandished as black music or fag music or both. The only way I as a white Midwesterner could my entryway into it was by being a fag. Other people got into it because of their race and other people got into it because of their race and their sexuality and stuff. So those are the different vectors that I think a lot of Americans in the 70s and 80s had towards disco and dance culture. If you were a white person into that sort of music, you were a fag in general. And if you were uh, a black person into it, then that was like the social coding around what music was normal to listen to in the same way that the white kids in my school would listen to rock or whatever. So it was all segregated like that. It was all totally segregated. It's an American who grew up in Missouri, which is like the Ozarks. It's like hillbilly culture. And my mother played... Hammered dulcimer and like folk music and stuff, and as a hobbyist, and growing up with bluegrass and stuff like that, too. It was really interesting that actually you have to think of country music as something that was part of a musical apartheid with the blues and jazz. We kind of have come to these histories where it's this American racial territorialization of ownership and stuff, and of course, the American black community has culturally become. Directed to be just obsessed with ownership and stuff as a counter reaction to the reality of the history of slavery and the impossibility of ownership and things. Culturally speaking, you know, that's why, like, a lot of the discourse around music is all about ownership and authenticity and who is valid to sing what and this and that. But actually, it's really fascinating if you look at the histories, you can't look at the history of country music and bluegrass without also understanding the history of blues. Conversely, you you can't look at the history of the blues without thinking about the influence of what was going on with country music and European folk music through the immigrants and stuff, influencing the black communities and things. These things are really, like, interwoven and really intricately have a very complex interwoven history that people have no fucking clue how to talk about. And it just becomes this complete ideological apartheid that it becomes impossible to think about the functions of country music also because country music also like within the kind of christian right was very rebellious and also had a lot of obscenities and things that also people identify as only being targeted towards black music stuff but actually as much as the documented fucked up interactions and exploitation between white and black musicians, there was also a lot of really important cross-cultural histories that are just lost. It becomes too taboo to talk through it culturally as Americans, for sure. We aren't allowed the complexity of language and intricacies of race relations to be able to actually analyze and create constructive analyses that Talk about those intricacies without them sounding like weird right wing talking points about trying to justify Elvis or something. it quickly becomes lost in that sort of bullshit there's the complications of my own history is I was basically the person the d j that was responsible for bringing underground. Minor label, instrumental, New York and New Jersey deep house into Sally's Two and the House of Magic and like the, that place where there were like trans ball scenes and stuff like that. I'm like fucking white kid from Missouri, and at the same time, you know, like the Puerto Rican DJ before me was a homophobic kid who only did hip hop and fucking hated fags. And there are these realities to history that are of course complicated by colonial histories and these sorts of dynamics of fetishization and Orientalism and all these racism and things. But at the same time, the reality of human interaction is much more hypocritical and complex. I mean, just like Sally's 2, the club scene I was at, that was like the African-American and Puerto Rican, Latina, trans sex worker scene, like the Johns were all of every race. A lot of them would really react hostile if you imply that they were fags or queer or not straight, even though they were there to pay for sex with trans sex workers and stuff. This is why I'm very much into thinking about that there's a real danger in the pride movement's eradication of strategies of the closet, of strategies of secrecy and silence, of brandishing the closet as something that can only be seen as a site of trauma and nothing more that basically like eradicates what few strategies we did manage to cultivate to deal with hypocrisy and things that you think would be things that could help us could serve as tools to work through these inevitable hypocrisies but instead we're just pummeled with pride to the point where like we have to validate the identities construct at all costs and that cost is actual human interaction and complexity. We didn't really get around to the issue that you brought up earlier of fuckability and how to maintain it or anything. I have to say that, like, you know, in thinking about this idea of even this kind of ideological hypothesis that LGBT is a community and this implication that we are together and that therefore it's a ghettoization and an apartheid in itself, where it's implying that we should be fucking each other. And only each other. And that's a sexual isolation that I think would make a lot of conservative straight people happy. You know what I mean? But I have to say, in my own experience with sexuality and fuckability and stuff, is that, you know, I've had a lot, a lot, a lot more sex with people that I don't politically align with than I've ever had with people that share my views. That's also a dark reality that I think a lot of people have. At some point, you have to start factoring that in and then thinking about how that reality alters the ideological functions of lgbt and how we align ourselves with so what is the willingness to align with something that is oftentimes a space where the where this ideological shared experience is implied when actually even if you are for example if you're gay identified and you're fucking other people who are gay identified the chances of you having actual shared politics is not as high as this image of community would have you believe right there's all kinds of things out there and fuckability is where so much politics falls apart so much essentialist identity actually will fall apart and i think that that's a wonderful thing i love the experience of being completely out of identity comfort zones and yet experiencing deep connection and pleasure, sharing that with another person. And that is just, nothing could be better. That's so much better than some kind of ideological camaraderie that where people are parroting ideas off to each other. I mean, there's so much more to share with people that, that are different from you.
0: Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Center for Gender and Equality, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature at the Basel Academy of Art and Design, FHNW. Conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch Recording and editing Terry Tamlitz and Sonia fernandez Pan. Final editing and voiceover Elena Caesar. Music, S. McAvoy. Research Team, Tabia Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication, Anna Franke. Technical Support, Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Colin Bart. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, Basel, FHNW, 2023.